Welcome to Conservation Conversations, the podcast where we discuss emerging technologies, global trends, and the future of biodiversity conservation with some of the world's leading experts. I'm your host, Sean O'Brien, President and CEO of NatureServe, where we've been working for 50 years to protect endangered species and ecosystems. With this podcast, we want to introduce our audience to some of today's key players in conservation and share the amazing work being done around the globe to protect our planet's rich biodiversity. Welcome to Conservation Conversations with Sean O'Brien. We're here today with Dr. Sahara Moon Chapatin, Executive Director of the United States Botanic Garden. She's a plant scientist with a passion to educate people about the importance of plants and the Earth's ecosystems, as well as urban agriculture, which I find fascinating. And we did a show recently where we talked a lot about that with Annie Novak. Uh, prior to joining the Botanic Gardens, Dr. Chapatin worked for uh, USAID, the Agency for International Development, and was Deputy Assistant to the Administrator in the Bureau of Food Security there, um, which is also part of what we're going to be talking about later, I think, with our uh, crop wild relative questions. Um, she has a Bachelor of Science in Biology from Stanford and a Doctorate in Plant Physiology from Harvard, and uh, in addition to those fantastic credentials is just a really nice person. So we're really thrilled to have you here with us today. Thank you so much, Sean. It's really great to be here. Yeah, and I'm especially thrilled because I can't quite see the Botanic Garden from the window of my office, but it is one of my favorite places in Washington. I have been visiting the garden as often as I possibly can, especially if I ever happen to be anywhere near the U.S. Capitol and I have a few minutes, I just go in and like absorb the smells and all of the pheromones and things coming off of the plants and and walk around and I just find it just like a beautiful and peaceful oasis in in Washington and uh, you know I know you get a million people a year in a normal year visiting and uh, I just think that's too small of a number yeah I agree. You know, it's funny you said that because before I started working there I would have told someone the same thing that it's my favorite place in Washington and then the number of people who've told me that since I started there. So I, I think we really do rank up on a lot of people's favorite places in DC, which is just such an honor to, to yeah. be on that list. When you're competing against all the Smithsonian's and all the other things that are happening in Washington, um, it's, it's still just a really special place. And of course, it's been around for 200 years. And uh, so I just also think that's really fascinating in a country that's not much older than 200 years. Mm -hmm that the U.S. Botanic Garden is one of the older institutions that we have here. It's really, I think, really cool. And yeah, this year we, this past year, we actually celebrated our 200th anniversary. And as you can imagine, quite a year to, to have an anniversary. But I think it really speaks to how important plants have been in the history of our country, that the founding fathers of our nation were focused on establishing a botanic garden right here in the capital. And they really wanted to demonstrate to people the importance that plants played in their lives. And, and a botanic garden was an amazing way to do that. And it, it remains one to this day, but I think it's, it really speaks to how central plants are to our history as a nation. Yeah, when you think back, actually, people who listen to this podcast regularly know that I used to work at Montpelier, which is the home of James Madison. And um, Thomas Jefferson, who is known for keeping great records about his farming activities, actually said that James Madison was the best farmer that he knew. Um, of course, in both cases, it was the enslaved people who worked for them that um, were doing all of the work. But um, you're exactly right. If you go back to the founding, so much of our founding is, is around plants. Um, and speaking of 
one of the things that I, we're going to talk about later, um, maybe this is just a little preview, um, the, the origins of wine in America are really important. Mm -hmm. And uh, talks a lot about the importance of plants in the early period of, of our country. And you can see why uh, the founders would have wanted to have a botanic gardens early on in, in setting up the government. Uh, but before we go to that and talk about how uh, NatureServe and the U.S. Botanic Gardens are collaborating. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your career path. Um, again, list, regular listeners know that one of the things I like to do is give any, uh, any people who are listening who are considering career paths that might take them into plant conservation or animal conservation work have uh, the right information to tell their parents when they're going to college, hey, guess what I want to study? I want to study botany and have their parents go, oh, that's a great idea. We think that that's excellent. There's wonderful career opportunities for you and it's important work. So um, tell me a little bit about how you got interested in this field and then sort mm -hmm. of your path to where, you, how you are, got to where you are now. Sure, you know, in some ways it's funny, I've come full circle and I'm, I'm having the career right now that I thought I might have when I was in grad school, even though I went off and did a whole lot of other things in between. And as I was a graduate student, um, I sort of knew I wasn't going the traditional academic um, professor at a university research route, but I would sometimes say to, see, say to people, well, I could see maybe ending up uh, director of a research station or at a botanic garden. Um, but then I didn't end up doing that. As, as you mentioned, I was at the US Agency for International Development, uh, which was a, a big departure from what I was doing in grad school, which was studying baobab trees in Madagascar. I just, I, I love trees. I've always loved being at heights. I actually, um, way, 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 way earlier, as I was just getting to adulthood, I used to do some circus arts. And so actually I found that tree climbing and canopy biology was the perfect way for me to mix my love of plants and my love of heights. It just, it was perfect. So I spent a lot of time climbing baobab trees and it was actually while I was in Madagascar that I decided I wanted to sort of pivot my career towards a more applied topic than, than academic research. And that was partly because I was seeing around me what was happening to the forests in Madagascar and, and the way that humans were having an impact on the environment. And I ended up um, moving to Washington, D.C. and working at USAID on issues of, of agriculture and really thinking about how we can improve agriculture to lessen the impact on the environment. I love that you just threw in circus arts like it was just, oh, yeah, circus arts is sure. something I do, um, which I also uh, love. And um, back when I was in grad school, I had the opportunity to do some tree climbing in Costa Rica uh, back before zip lines and all were a thing. And uh, it truly is magical to be up there in the canopy and see the forest from a completely different perspective. It's, it's really spectacular. Yeah. And uh, for somebody like you who likes heights, um, it's even better, I would think. Oh yeah, it's great. I could spend all day up there. Yeah, that's great. Um, so tell me a little bit, so you were talking about, you thought this might be a place where you would end up. Um, so I wanna hear a little bit about, you said research station. And I think when a casual visitor goes to the Botanic Gardens, they're not necessarily thinking about research. So I'm interested about uh, Botanic Gardens in general and their role, and then what makes the U.S. Botanic Garden sort of different or unusual in its particular role in conservation of plants? Sure. Yeah, well, botanic gardens play a tremendous role in plant conservation in particular, and, and many have large research programs. But I think their specific role in conservation is so critical. You can, you can do in-situ conservation when you're conserving plants in their national environment. And many botanic gardens are involved in that. And, and, and that's something, obviously, you're, you, you work very closely with. And then you can also conserve plants ex situ, so outside of their natural environment, for example, a living collection at a botanic garden or in a seed bank. 
and that's where I think botanic gardens have a tremendous role to play. And, and botanic gardens will specialize in different ways. Some will have plants that are local to their area. Some will have certain taxa, for example, at the US Botanic Garden. We have lots of native plants to North America, but we also have a huge orchid collection. And many of our orchids are rare and endangered. And so we're serving as a repository for those orchids and we're maintaining them and keeping them alive. And we can share them with other botanic gardens and ensure that those plants are always conserved. That's, I think that's great. And the, the in situ and ex situ um, is really interesting and important part of the conversation. Because as you said, NatureServe, we focus on where things are on the ground and site-specific endemics, which is a fancy way of saying something that only exists in one place, um, are really important in terms of conservation and in terms of you know, what is endangered on the landscape. And so having those um, representatives of those species in places like botanic gardens is, is really important for the long-term, yeah. necessarily viability, but for you know, being able to potentially recover restore species back to nature in, in the future. Yeah. And so tell me a little bit about some research that's happening at the Botanic Gardens um, that, again, you know, maybe people wouldn't be thinking that's something that you do there. Yeah, well, we partner with organizations. We have partnerships um, with organizations across the country and, in, in fact, global partnerships aimed at, at in the large part, plant conservation. and. Um, you mentioned, you know, working on the ground and understanding where plants are, and then I mentioned um, conserving, protecting those plants, and, and we're often at the intersection. So one of the things we're doing is, is supporting conservation assessments um, of plants in North America to understand which plants um, are endangered or rare, or where they are, or what their conservation status is, so that botanic gardens can step in and do a better job of conserving those, because of course we, we don't know what needs to be protected or what is um, what what perhaps hasn't yet been brought into botanic garden collections or seed banks. So you need that information and some of our partnerships are aimed at, at connecting that information. Right. Um, we're, we're doing something with the Morton Arboretum in, in Illinois um, that is focused on, on oaks, oaks, native oak um, species here in the United States, understanding um, where they are, what their conservation status is, and actually collecting them and ensuring that those oaks are, are in living collections because you can't put um, acorns mm -hmm. in a seed bank very well but ensuring that they're in living collections and, and that we're understanding everything we can about these, these rare oak trees. So this isn't something that I had thought to ask before, but since you mentioned seed banks a couple of times, um, I know that there are some large seed banks that are being maintained in other countries and particularly in the far North where it's nice and cold. Um, does the United States have an active seed bank program? Is the US Botanic Garden involved in that? How does, what is happening with seed banking in, in this country? Oh, that's a whole, that could, that could be a whole podcast in itself. Um, no, we don't have one at the U.S. Botanic Garden, but there are there are many active seed banks here in the United States. There are some that focus on, on, on wild plants. Um, U.S. Department of Agriculture has seed banks that, that focus on crop plants and, and everything in between. And we're engaged um, in that world through partnerships, as I was saying, and, and an area that, that we've really been thinking about in terms of conserving plants is in the area of crop wild relatives and making sure that um, those relatives of the crop plants that we rely on for, for everything right. are being conserved in, in, in seed banks or, or gene banks. Yeah, so the crop wild relative thing is really, really important and I think is only gonna become more important in the future. And that's yeah. a subject um, that's very specifically important and interesting to, to you and to me because our organizations are explicitly collaborating on a crop wild relative project. 
um, with grapes um, of all things. And um, people, turns out people love grapes. Um, one of the biggest fruit um, crops in the, in the world. And um, people don't just eat grapes, but they drink grapes in various forms. Uh, so people have a, a nice attachment to, uh, to this. So, you know, I think about um, this project in particular and reflecting back to what I was saying about uh, the founders, when they tried to bring grapes to the United States to make wine here, they weren't successful doing that. Can you explain what was going on and how they fixed that? And then how that then helped the old world as well? Yeah, well, you might need to help me out with the first part of the story. I can flip to the old world part. Okay, um, that's the part I know better, which is just that the you know the phylloxera, an insect, was was decimating um, vineyards in in Europe in the old world, and it was actually um, you know they tried a lot of different things, but ultimately it was a rootstock from an American species that was resistant to this insect, which had come over from the Americas, and in, and when you're making you know vineyards, you actually can can graft. The, the above ground part, the scion onto the rootstock. And so you can get the benefits of that really hardy rootstock. And you can get, of course, the benefits of the perfect variety of grape that gives you just the flavor of wine that you're looking for. Right. And so in fact, they were able to save the, the European wine industry by grafting those European grapes onto the, um, the American rootstock, which was resistant to this phylloxera. And, and effectively the same thing happened originally is the, plants that were brought from Europe to the United States couldn't grow in our soil. They, I think they got a fungus. And so mm -hmm. they weren't able to successfully grow European grapes over here. Okay. And ultimately they figured out that they could graft the European plants onto American root and grow grapes over mm -hmm. here. So not only are the American roots in Europe, they're in our country. And yeah. the tops of the plants are also from the same place, but just from over there. And so it's actually really quite fascinating um, to think that, you know, every orchard or not every orchard, every um, vineyard that you drive past is made up of grafted plants. Uh, it's yeah. quite astonishing to think about. Yeah. Um, and, and shows the importance of a crop wild relative, right? We could have no grapes growing or no, uh, no wine industry in the United States, at least, or in, potentially in Europe, if we hadn't been able to get to some wild relatives of a crop. Exactly. And I think there's, you know, there's stories playing out like that across agriculture. And as you noted, we're working together on, on conservation assessments for wild vitus, wild grape species here in the United States. And, and the importance of grapes, wild relatives of grapes to the to the grape industry. And, and in fact, a, a study that, that was done a few years back, really looking at the global distribution of the wild relatives of crops found that crop wild relatives are really underrepresented in, in living collections and in gene banks across the world. 70% um, of the crop wild relatives they were able to identify were a priority for collection and for bringing into to living collections. And botanic gardens are repositories for, for many of these. And so, and these were, you know, like really common food crops, like a lot of our cereals, bananas, um, cassava, things that are real food security crops, as you said, for, for many, many people across the world. And to me, that feels like such a wonderful way to connect the the work that botanic gardens can do and the strengths we have, which is such a, a global priority of, of ensuring that we have the crops of the future that we're gonna need for the world of the future. So the climate is changing, disease and pest pressures are changing, um, drought and, and heat tolerance are incredibly important traits. 
and crop breeders, plant breeders can access those traits through crop wild relatives. And especially given the new technologies we have now, it's so much more feasible to bring those genes and traits over. So to me, it feels like one of those critical junctures where we can kind of our worlds come together and it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, I th it, it is beautiful. And I think what you just said is some of the most important things that people could hear. The, you know, as we go into the climate change reality that we're all facing, and we've become increasingly dependent on crops that are genetically bottlenecked on purpose by big agriculture, we may get into situations where we need to find that wild corn or that wild rice or mm -hmm. some other crop that we can splice in so that we can maintain mm -hmm. a, a food supply for, for the humans on the yeah. planet. Yeah. And, you know, as that's, you... that's happening. I think that's something maybe people don't realize is that crops are continually being bred to adapt to the changing environment. And, and you know, the, the crops that we had 50 years ago wouldn't do well today because there's just new diseases and, and pests out there. And so plant breeders are constantly releasing new varieties, constantly staying one, one step ahead of, of the pests and diseases. And so giving them as many tools to work with and the full range of plant diversity to work with um, is so important because that's, that has to happen all the time. And they can you know, develop better plants if, if they really have access to those materials. It's also a really important and interesting point because you don't really think about it when you think about uh, corn or something that you see when you're driving down the road, uh, that it's different from it was 20 years ago and 50 years ago. Yeah. Um, I think most of us are, appreciate the value of, or the, the taste of heirloom tomatoes and things like that for some of the genetic diversity that we could hopefully see more in our, in our food supply. Uh, so you, we, we've sort of talked a little around climate change um, and it's you know obviously at NatureServe where we're thinking about you know endangered species and especially the most endangered species which are often very range limited um, mm -hmm. think about the impacts of climate change on these species not just the crop wild relatives but you know anything any any plants uh, and actually one of the things I think is fun about NatureServe is that we're uh, taxonomically agnostic, which means we work with plants, we work with insects, we work with mammals and birds and um, everything in between, including fungus and everything. Um, and so we think about how climate change affects all of those different things. Um, but I think plants uh, are particularly interesting because the range of uh, ad adaptations that they may have or the range of challenges they may have in responding to climate change. And I just love to hear you talk about that a little bit because I think it's, it's hard to sort of even conceive if we think 50 years ago what the climate was like in 50 mm -hmm. years from now, what the climate is gonna be like, what impact does that have on the assemblage of species that we see on the landscape every day when we go out just for a walk in the woods? Yeah. No, it's such an important topic, and it's it's not a theoretical question anymore. It's it's we can't say what you know what what will the potential impact of climate change be. We're seeing the impacts of climate change right now, and we're already seeing species distributions shift. Seeing you know certain plant populations are are no longer thriving where they used to thrive due to either the direct impacts of climate change in terms of of, of cooler, warmer climates or more or less rainfall, but also in terms of the pest pressures the insect pressures that are going to accompany changes in climate. And so, you know, as you noted earlier, there's a, we, we focus on, on rare plants, but those that are often found at, at one site, a single site endemic. 
And those are so vulnerable to climate change because if that that habitat, that environment changes, there's not another one out there that mm-hmm. can survive and, and and roll through and perhaps spread if it's vulnerable and it, it gets um, wiped out due to some you know climate change event, then it's gone. It's gone forever. And so I think there's there's really a need for us to understand what plant distributions are and to understand how plants could adapt, as you said, or, or where they could um, shift their distribution patterns. And, and it's those that are in isolated areas, whether it's, it's islands or mountaintops or, or you know, plants that are geographically limited from, from moving that are gonna be the first to go and, and where there's some special attention required. I think it's, it's so important. Um, and we, uh, you know, it's easy for people to think about the charismatic megafauna, but, um, really thinking about how plants are going to respond um, because of their role in sort of maintaining our environment, whether it's, uh, you know, ecosystem services or nature's benefits to mankind. So much of that actually comes back to the plants on the environment that we really can't overstate the significance of thinking about plants when we're thinking about conservation and not just focusing on, you know, the pandas and rhinos, not that they're not important, but we, we really have to pay attention to what's going on in the, in the plant world. Speaking to the speaking to the, uh, the converted there. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, plants are plants are the foundation of, of just about every ecosystem on the planet. Most, you know, maybe some in the ocean, but um, and so yeah, without the plants, you, you don't you don't have that ecosystem. And you know, as you said, the, the the rhinos and the pandas have got to eat something. Right. Exactly. So Sahara Moon, one of the things that I like to ask people is, you know, at the end of your career. If you're looking back, and that could be at any age that you choose for it to be, um, what would if you look back and say, you know, oh, that's the thing that I did that really makes me happiest or most proud. I mean, that's why I know I was successful in in doing what I do because you you work very deliberately in a mission driven organization, um, and that's clearly your path. And so you must have some thought about that in your mind. And I'd love to hear yeah. a little bit about that. Is there one thing? I mean, I think it you know depends where I've been in my career and and where I will go. I think there's so many there's so many things I would love to to have accomplished. But I think you know for where I am right now, if if we can at the U.S. Botanic Garden help grow people's understanding of plants and how plants impact their lives, to me that feels that we'll have done amazing work. And you know, it's it's both. Yeah, we eat plants, so that's that's how plants impact our lives. It's how plants are part of the natural environment, and when we're not conserving plants and, and the ecosystems that they're in, that we're having an impact on that natural environment, which which has an impact on us. And plants also sustain us in, in so many ways. We have beautiful plants in our homes. We we enjoy outdoor spaces and gardens. And so, I think that you know, as people come through the botanic garden, um, they walk in the conservatory. They're in our out, outside gardens. They're in our kitchen garden or they're attending one of our online programs, um, my hope is that they'll come away with with a greater appreciation for plants and an understanding of how central plants are. And that makes them a plant advocate maybe, makes them someone who who recognizes the need for for conserving plants and conserving the environment and allows them to have that perspective as they go through their life. Because they're not gonna live at the Botanic Garden, they're gonna come through when they come through, but if they can take that away with them, I think that would have been a really important thing. I think that's great, and it's a, you're in a wonderful spot to do that. Um, as we talked about earlier, 
the U.S. Botanic Gardens. Uh, what does it cost to go in? I, I'm trying to remember. I don't remember taking out my wallet for it. It's free. It's free. <laughs> it's yeah. free. It's another it's one of those great free things you can do in Washington. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be all getting back into places like that again soon, and we'll be able to uh, take advantage of, of things that you've done there. So I'm actually a little curious, um, what have you done to respond to the coronavirus, and how have you managed to you know, pursue the mission of the Botanic Gardens through all of this? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, it has been an intense year and I, I know that's true for you and for everyone out there watching and, and that's been true for us at the, at the Botanic Garden. And, you know, when when we closed to the public, um, you know, almost a year ago now, um, I don't think anyone anticipated that that we would be closed so long. And, um, but I'm I'm really proud of, of, of my team and of what we did, how we, we pivoted. We wanted to continue to engage with our visitors and, and the public. And we found a way to pivot our programming online. And we, you know, we started, we had some existing programs and we reached out and we said, hey, can you do this over, you know, over Zoom or whatever? And, and we, we, there's a lot of technology involved in trying to figure out how to do that well. And then just really understanding what our visitors would like to be um, learning about, our, our participants, I should say at this point, um, you know, how can we offer hands-on programs in a virtual space? Um, how can we give people things that they can do to bring plants into their home since most people, most people are spending so much time in their homes right now. So that was, that was really exciting actually. And I think, you know, looking forward, I think there will be continued demand for us to have online programming, even as we're able to come back in person. And so we're, you know, thinking about how we can continue to offer that. And, and really it's been a great opportunity for us to connect with, um, a much wider audience than people who can come downtown say, on an evening or, or during the week for a program, people who you know have um, live in different areas across the country. We've had people joining our programs from around the world, so it's been really wonderful to better connect with so many different people in this new way. Yeah, that's fantastic. I think being able to reach out beyond the people who can physically come is so important, and uh, it's great yeah. that you've been able to be successful in doing that. And um, so. Unless you have any questions for me, um, well, I I could flip that question you just asked me. If you know, at the end of at the end of your career, what what would be what would be a major achievement for you? Yeah, um, so I think there's probably a, a, a meta answer and a closer in answer, like you sort of had. My closer in answer is oh. NatureServe. I really believe is one of the most important organizations that nobody's ever heard of. We are the organization in North America that knows you know, where the endangered species are, what they are, and has the expertise and the connections to develop plans to conserve them and save them and prevent them from becoming extinct. And so ensuring the long-term viability of NatureServe and our enterprise to provide that service to the world so that 50 years from now, because NatureServe is about 50 years old, 50 years from now, when I'm... Uh, well past the end of my career. Um, if this organization is here continuing to protect threatened and endangered species, uh, I will be incredibly proud and, and, and satisfied. Uh, I do think uh, I reflect back to um, the answer that Lucas Joppa gave when I asked him this question. And he, he was willing to say that even if just one fewer species went extinct because of his work, he would feel like that was successful. Because at this point, 
humans are causing species to go extinct at somewhere between 100 and 1,000 times of the background rate. And we are, we are creating a geologic era that you know, archaeologists a million years from now will look back and will see an extinction event right now that says on par with or even bigger than the famous uh, extinction events in the past. And so being able to contribute to perhaps making it harder to find our footprint in the future on, uh, on the number of species on the planet, it would, would make me very happy, very satisfied. Yeah, um, any, anything that, that'd be, that would be a great legacy. I have no doubt you'll succeed. Uh, thank you, I hope so. Uh, well, Sahara Moon Chapatin, Executive Director of the U.S. Botanic Gardens, thank you for joining us today on Conservation Conversations. And I really look forward to um, when we meet in person and can uh, taste the fruits of our labor on the Crop Wild Relative Project related to grapes. Look forward to that too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been Conservation Conversations with Sean O'Brien, a production of NatureServe. Thanks for joining us.